Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 10, uh, verses 38 through 42, as we continue in this series. Um, If you're just joining us and hitting it for the first time, uh, we're sort of tracking with a a book called Who Is This Man? by Reverend John Ortberg, and this is our fourth message in that series. We're actually going to be looking at four different scripture texts this morning, This is uh, the final of the four that we're going to look at in the message and sort of the culminating one. So we're reading this one first. Luke 10, beginning at verse 38. This is God's holy and infallible word. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. That's God's word for us this morning. So far in this morning sermon series, we've seen how, how the impact of the perfect person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ has changed our world through the ideas of the sanctity of all human life, and also the idea of compassion for those in need, introduced by Jesus in the Christian church following him. Today, we see the impact Jesus has on how we look at women and a woman's place in society. The four passages I mentioned just a little while ago will give us a picture of how Jesus approached and treated women to give us a vision for a Christian, a believing approach to the place and person of women today. In Jesus' day, if you know just a little bit about history, you know things weren't so great for women and girls. Excuse me. In the ancient world, speaking especially of like the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean area where um, Israel was part of the Roman Empire. So in that part of the ancient world, there were more men around than women. Quite a bit more, noticeably more. And that's really strange if you think about it because the Roman Empire was very militaristic, constantly warring, battling to expand the empire where they could certainly continuing to defend the empire from invaders on all sides. So you'd expect a shortage of men because so many soldiers were killed off. Instead, John Ortberg writes that for every 140 men, there were 100 women. Why in the world would that be? Well, the law of Romulus said that a father was only legally obligated to care for his male children and the firstborn female child. And so families would often leave additional baby girls to die 
Did they actually do this? Well, the records of 600 households in one particular city show that only six of those 600 households had more than one daughter. So what happened to the rest? Well, the families were following the law and let them die. If I were a typical father in those days, Hannah, Sophia, and Adriana, daughters 2, 3, and 4, might not be around. Hard to imagine. We have a first century letter from a husband to his pregnant wife. And he writes this, I ask and beg of you to take good care of our baby son. If you deliver the child, she's pregnant now, they already have one son. If you deliver the child before I come home, if it's a boy, keep it. If a girl, discard it. And then the letter goes on with, you know, don't worry about me, I'll be home soon. Can, can you guys imagine treating Lillian different from Calvin? Not sure she'd allow it for one, but... For girls who did survive infancy, slave prostitution was a normal fact of life for some, and there was nothing illegal about it, nothing unusual or scandalous about it in those days. A woman in the very best of conditions really never had any more rights than a child. They didn't receive the same education as boys. Wives could be divorced on a whim. In most cases, widows or women who never married had no hope of existing on their own, so they'd either have to sell themselves into slavery or hope some man would somehow take him into his household along with whatever wife he already had or, or else she would probably die in the streets. If a woman was violated, compensation went to the father or husband. And it's on this principle. If your car is damaged, you get the money. You don't give the money to your car. The owner is compensated, not the property, which is legally women were were property. And now when Jesus came, he revealed and introduced a completely different approach. He planted the seeds of, of what we call egalitarianism, and that's the Christian idea that all people are created equal in God's sight. All people are equal in worth. This was new to the world. Galatians 3.28, I said it a couple weeks ago, that's considered to be the very first statement of equality in human literature ever. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. Four scenes from Jesus' walk and work and life on this earth to give us a glimpse of how this principle of Jesus looks. They, they show us Jesus' approach to women, and as a result, what uh, the Christian approach, the right approach is. First of all, John 4. This is the first scene. This is Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, and it's the longest conversation recorded in the Bible between Jesus and one person. The longest conversation recorded between Jesus and one person is is with a woman, this Samaritan woman. And what stands out simply is that Jesus treats her like a person. Jesus treats her with the dignity and respect all people deserve. To not treat a woman as subhuman or as an object in those days was a big deal, revolutionary. 
In the course of Jesus' conversation with her, Jesus highlights that he knows everything about her. He knows that she had five marriages and that the person she was living with was not her husband. And when we focus on that, we can focus on, wow, what a sinner that woman was. Um, and in that day and, and today too, the tendency is to focus on that. The tendency is to shame the woman. That is not what Jesus does here. If there was sin in her life, like in anyone's, Jesus would address that. But what stands out is that Jesus notices her at all. He cares about her, even though she was poor, even though she was a woman and a Samaritan at that, a people the Israelites hated. And, and Jesus has this deep, theological, personal discussion about God and about this woman's relationship with the Lord. A man normally wouldn't even stoop to have a conversation with the woman, especially one like her. And yet, the Savior takes her mind and her opinions and her questions seriously. It's no wonder they had a long conversation. No wonder she kept talking with them. She was astounded by Jesus. She was amazed. Nobody did this. Jesus treated her as a person, someone who had her own identity, when usually women were only given identity in relation to the men in their life. This was new. Jesus was planting seeds for change in our world. A second scene, it's Luke 8, 2, and 3. We see there that Jesus included women in his community of people. And when we think about Jesus' ministry on earth and uh, we think about him traveling around the countryside, teaching, performing miracles with the 12 disciples. But when you read the Gospels, you find there were also others around that group, not just the 12, as Jesus proclaimed the good news of God's kingdom. And these verses in Luke 8 tell us that there were women in this group of Jesus' followers too. And that would have been shocking for those days. Women didn't travel with men. Women stayed home. They stayed indoors. They didn't do stuff like this. But in Jesus' community, women and men were traveling around, studying, learning, hearing of, of God and his kingdom together. We read in these verses that one of the women was jo Joanna, the wife of the manager of Herod's household of all things. So a pretty prominent person. Isn't that incredible? Uh, the wife of the manager of Herod's household was in this community. The Bible tells us that there was a woman named Susanna with them and many others too. And we read the women were helping to support them out of their own means. Jesus included women in his new community right alongside men, and they were even supporting the men. Third scene. This is Luke 11, verse 27. It's a single verse. By far the highest possible calling for women in the ancient world was to bear children, especially to bear male children. And, and that makes you wonder, where did that leave women who couldn't have children? Where did that leave women who didn't feel called to have children? And even today, we can tend to make 
having children the highest calling of a woman. Jesus has something to say about that view in this verse, I believe. One day as Jesus was teaching, a woman called out in the crowd, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you, is what this woman called out. A compliment to Mary, Jesus' mother. Really nice. You'd expect a little thank you from Jesus. Yes, she was the greatest mother ever. But he says something different. He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Kind of an edgy response, basically saying, no, you're wrong, lady. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying that the highest calling of a woman is not to bear a child. Now, motherhood and fatherhood are high callings, I believe. In fact, I personally think believers should fill the earth with as many children as they believe they can handle. But that's not a woman's highest calling. If you don't have children, if you aren't married, you haven't missed out somehow. Not according to Jesus. He gives us a higher calling. The highest calling of a woman is also the same as the highest calling of a man. As Ortberg puts it, the glorious purpose of coming to know and do the will of our God in whose image we are created. To know Him, to glorify Him, to follow Him in our lives. Through Jesus, this calling, this great purpose to know the Lord is available to any woman now, regardless of age, marital status, child-bearing capacity, number of children, station in life. That's the highest calling of a woman, which is also the highest calling of a man and every boy and girl created to know our God, to follow Him, to obey Him, to have the joy of living for Him, putting that as the main purpose, and then all the other purposes and callings of our life underneath it. Finally, the fourth scene. It's the text we read together, Luke 10, 38-42. We have these sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus was teaching in Mary and Martha's home one day, we know throughout the Gospels that Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus were very special and dear friends to Jesus. Martha was doing the work of preparing and hosting, and her sister Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet listening. Well, Martha got a little ticked off as sometimes can happen with people who take the burden on their shoulders of getting all the work done. Why isn't Mary in the kitchen slaving away alongside me? Martha, Martha, says Jesus. Seems like if Jesus says your name a couple times, you know, not just once, maybe you better listen closely. He says, you're worried and upset about many things. Only one thing is needed, Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And, you know, we often look at this as all about busyness versus being quiet and still before Jesus. And there could very well be a lesson about that here, but there's something else going on. There's a first century technical term in verse 39. 
Mary sat at Jesus' feet. That's a technical term for a person being someone else's disciple. Mary was doing something that only men in that culture did. Be a disciple of a rabbi. Jesus is applauding Mary for wanting to be his disciple. And by saying she chose the one thing that is needed, he's inviting women too to be his disciples. So the fourth scene is in effect an invitation. Not only men, but women too are invited to be Jesus' followers, and that's the most important thing that men or women can do with their lives. And that's what happened. Women followed Jesus to the cross, remember, when all the men were afraid and ran away. The task of being the first witnesses to proclaim the resurrection was given to women. That's a big deal. A woman's testimony in court was usually just disregarded. Didn't mean anything in court. But Jesus, in his design, has them as the very first witnesses of his resurrection. He's telling us something. He's telling us about a change. Women were involved in the first churches. The core of the church at Philippi included a businesswoman, Lydia, who was the main financial support for that church, at least initially. In fact, people who study this tell us that women were likely a clear majority in the early church. So, what do women need according to these four passages? And what does Jesus provide? One, to be treated as people, to be included in the community of Jesus' followers, to find their greatest purpose in knowing God and following Him, and to accept Jesus' invitation to be His disciple. Tremendous, revolutionary ideas for that world in that day. Jesus' coming has had tremendous impact, and yet we know he and his kingdom values still need to come to our world and our society today. In 1990, there was an essay written. It was called this, More Than 100 Million Women Are Missing. It was about gender imbalance in China, India, elsewhere in the world. 20 years later, it was even worse. Asia had an imbalance of 163 million more males than females, if you can believe that. In, in parts of the world still, girls are done away with, treated as inferior to boys. This has all kinds of terrible consequences and ramifications. With, with less women around, rich family can't find brides as easily for their sons, and so poor families are more likely to sell their daughters, which leads to trafficking, girls sometimes younger than 12 being married off, all kinds of terrible consequences. You've read perhaps and heard of the binding of women's feet in China. There's a practice of suicide by funeral pyre among widows in India. Genital mutilation in parts of Africa. Polygamy still goes on. Lack of education, lack of opportunity. Brittany Vandernald shared with us when she shared about her year around the world of how women in a number of places she traveled 
didn't have a say at all. Their opinion didn't matter in conversation, basically just ignored. And from what I understand, in Saudi Arabia today, it takes two women's testimonies to equal one man's in court legally. The problems aren't just the broad. Last week was the Super Bowl Sunday, big day. The Attorney General published a report last year. Maybe you caught it. It was a week before the Super Bowl came out that Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday is the largest human trafficking day of the year in the United States. Human slavery, prostitution fill the city that hosts the Super Bowl as thousands, ten thousands of men come into the city. Exact numbers are really difficult to come by, but according to UNICEF, there are 1.5 million victims of trafficking just in the United States today. About 20 million worldwide, 1.5 million victims of trafficking in the U.S. And these are by far mostly women and girls who have come upon terrible and hard times. Our world needs Jesus and His kingdom to come yet today. His good news of salvation because of His death and resurrection to atone for our sins is good news for all people. And it's good news for women. He came for women, no less than men, though our world has had a tendency to treat women and girls as inferior, and still does in a lot of ways. But not Jesus. Not Christians. Not the church. Not on our watch, believers. I got three three takeaways I want to share with you. I want to give to you to, to take away. First, let's be sure we don't confuse that neither male nor female statement of Paul with men and women being identical. Men and women having equal worth in God's sight does not mean they are identical. That might be very obvious to you, but it needs to be said. There can be equality and yet difference of roles. And as a church, we read the Bible as indicating that the offices of pastor, elder, and deacon are for men. That does not take away from a fundamental equality. And in a home where there's a husband and a wife, the Bible says the husband is the spiritual head of the home. Both mother and father are leaders in the home for sure. Marriage is a partnership, certainly. But we believe God gives ultimate spiritual responsibility to The man in that situation. Jesus treating all people with equal dignity and worth certainly leaves room for a difference of roles in society, in the church, and in the home. And I think that's important to say. Um, I think we get that for the most part. But in the world, that that equality is almost going going to... It's all the same. Identical in roles and everything. That's not what this is saying. Second takeaway, as we think about who women are in Jesus, young men, men, I, gotta, I urge you to stay away from pornography. It is a great evil. 
It is a tool of the devil himself. It comes from the pit of hell. We've got to guard ourselves. Flee from it. It will warp your view of women. It will make you incapable of seeing women and girls with Jesus' eyes. You'll see them as objects to be used, to be abused. That's what pornography does. It distorts our sense of the image of God in people. And if you're ensnared by it right now, don't despair. There is forgiveness for that too in Jesus. You can break free of it. Sometimes you might need help. But God can heal you and he can bring you back to health. There is always grace. There is always help in the Christian community if you need it. Other guys have been there before you with this evil and and the trap of it. But please, flee pornography. Don't even dabble with it for a little bit. It will suck you in. Our precious wives, our daughters, our sisters in Jesus, they need us to view them with the eyes of Jesus, not with the eyes of the world, not with the eyes of sin. The Holy Spirit can purify us. And the Holy Spirit, he can help us in this great danger and evil in our society that, boy, we have such easy access to these days. Finally, third final takeaway. If you're a woman or a girl this morning and you're out here and you, you question your worth, you feel inadequate, look to Jesus this morning. Everything you read says there's a much higher percentage of women and girls who have self-esteem issues and, and the world and its pressures and the objectification of women can do that and will do that. So I call you to look to the one, capital O, look to the one who looks at you perfectly with grace, with dignity, as a person, as the Bible shows us he does. In the midst of a world where there are people who look at women either as an object to be used or else of not much worth at all, look to our loving Savior today. Look at the purpose He gives you. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and obey it. So hear His voice this morning. Follow Him. Jesus invites you to sit at His feet, to be His disciple. You wonder about your identity and your purpose and your place in the midst of this world. And and not just women struggle with this, so do guys, each one of us. Well, the Bible gives us how we'll find it, by following Jesus. And so the invitation for all of us is to give Jesus our life and our hearts. May knowing the Lord be the number one calling that we have together in this church Every single one of us in it together equally. Women, men, girls, boys. Following our Savior. Living life His way. May His kingdom come in our lives and in our church and in our world today. Amen.